Hello and welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien, I'm your host and creator of the Head First Podcast and the Head First Instagram page, which you can find using the handle headfirstzero. This podcast is here to bring you all things psychology and mental health, so check out the other episodes if you have an interest in psychology and in mental health. This podcast is sponsored by Spectrum Mental Health, who are a mental health company who do counselling and psychotherapy, as well as corporate psychology services. So I work within their clinical team. If you have any questions regarding the services that I provide or the services that Spectrum provide, you can email me at joeobrien at mentalhealth.ie or contact me through my Instagram page. Hi there, and welcome to the Head First Podcast. Um, today, I'm joined by registered nutritionist Jenny Rossborough, who I'm uh, beyond excited to speak uh, with about the role of environment in managing obesity. So obviously, as a trainee psychologist, I have a big interest in public health and behavior change, especially when it comes to things like um, nutrition. So firstly, delighted to have you on, Jenny. Thank you so much for, for making the time. Thanks for having me. Um, so I guess um, a good place to start might be um, just tell me a little bit about who you are and, and what you do and for everyone who, who maybe doesn't know who you are. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm registered nutritionist and um, specialise in public health really. So my current role is um, head of nutrition at Jamie Oliver's um, and there I do a wide variety of, of um, nutrition related work because we um, cover kind of retail and restaurants and public health and campaigning and recipe development. So that's really broad. Um, but what got me into that job was my background in policy, and that was through being campaign manager at Action on Sugar, um, a charity which was um, working to change the food environment to improve it, to make it easier for people to be healthier. And so that was working a lot with food industries, trying to get them to make changes, but also the government. And then before then, I was working in child weight management. Um, it's a programme called MEND, which is an acronym. Um, and that was writing behaviour change programmes for families. Um, and we delivered them across the UK and internationally as well. So it, it, a lot of my work will be focused around um, child health, but just through either behaviour change or then policy. So kind of both sides of the coin. Okay, so your interest in this kind of started quite a long time ago and, and got you here eventually. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so, so most, most of your role now is, is in relation to, or some of your role, sorry, is, is in relation to kind of policy and, and public health. So um, I obviously see you speak about a lot of this online. What role do you actually have or what, what kind of things you mentioned, like campaigning, things like that, mm. in relation to population health and obesity and things like that? What, what part of that is part of your role at the moment? So, well, my role, well, it's kind of similar elements to what I was even doing at Action on Sugar, but it was all around policies to change the food environment. So things like marketing and advertising or foods and drinks high in fat, salt and sugar, um, price promotions and discounts on these foods, product placements are where you see them in the supermarkets. Um, also the sugar tax, so the, the cost of foods, that impact in the cost of foods, well, this was on drinks, um, one the, uh, campaign that we actually um, managed to see across the line. So that was a soft drinks industry levy. Um, and also pushing for kind of reformulation programs. I mean, there's loads of different things at a local level and a national level when it comes to policy. It could be kind of where, you know, how many fast food outlets are near schools or are there, you know, um, school meal allowance reaching families in holidays. And it's really, really, really broad, but it's all kind of centred around um, essentially making kind of a fairer food system um, for people and, and equal access to healthy food for all. Okay, so I guess changing population health on a, on a wider level than just at the individual level. Do you work at, at the individual level as well? 
So I did, um, I don't now, but I did historically, well, kind of more in a group-based setting, but that was more the behaviour change elements that we would do nutrition, um, we, would, we would teach nutrition, we would incorporate physical activity classes, but the really crucial bit that I know that we've spoken about before where our work kind of has overlapped is um, the psychology. So working with clinical and health psychologists actually is a, a brilliant part of of my career and I think it really set me up to kind of get that understanding and um, so it was never just nutrition education by itself it was also teaching and um, behavior change and giving people the tools there and, and kind of working with people to, to come to ways to make changes in a way that was relevant to them in their lives um, I guess kind of what is interesting is that was for people who are walking through the door and we could get through the door and were already on some level engaged whereas the public health stuff it reaches those people who aren't necessarily engaged in their health for whatever reason, could be lots of different reasons. Um, and so that their policies that really impact across the board. So everyone, even if they're not necessarily engaged in, in changing behaviours or their policies that make it easier for people to change behaviours. Yeah, regardless of whether yeah, regardless of whether they're in intervention or not, or whether they yeah. have access to those services. So I guess the public health stuff is is affecting people wider than just at an individual level, or like you said, at a at a group level. Um, yeah. I know part of what we wanted to speak about today was around public health and specifically kind of obesity. So mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the kind of narrative around obesity at the moment we hear lots of controversy especially in the uk i'm obviously based in ireland but i see a lot of the the news and things like that um what are some of the problems you see with the with the narrative around obesity at the moment because we see a lot about like responsibility on the individual and where does that lie does this do they have some responsibility do they not have any um stigmatizing environments like weight stigma and things like that where do you um i guess what are the kind of messages you see that are problematic or or what are the problems with yeah. some of the around obesity at the moment this is a huge area and I think communication comms is, is crucial. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of blame in the individual, which is a really nice narrative for food industry and the government, because essentially it gives people who have the license to make changes the power to do nothing if we can just blame the individual. Um, and we know that that's like it, it doesn't help anyone um, and it can contribute to weight stigma for a start it usually undermines the complex um, contributing factors to weight gain so the fact that weight gain is um, psychological physiological biological societal environmental all these different factors play a role and that usually undermines it because those messages you just get fitter the, the move move more eat less messages assume that we will start at a level playing field and all have the same ability to make certain changes. Um, and with that, there becomes this idea of choice that we've all just got free choice. And some of us are making really good choices and therefore we're healthy. And some of us are making really bad choices and therefore we're unhealthy. And obviously that hugely oversimplifies um, a really complex issue, which is, is then contributing to the weight stigma, which is then a vicious circle because you know that that can contribute to weight gain as well. So. A classic example of this was the publication of the newest obesity strategy in the UK, which was in July. Um, and all the headlines really were about putting Britain on a diet or, you know, everyone's got to get fitter. And it was based on the prime minister um, having coronavirus, his weight potentially having impacted his um, outcome, chances of recovery, and therefore kind of this new drive to get everyone fit and healthy and active. And those messages are really difficult because... I think they can alienate a lot of people who just feel like they might have tried and failed when it comes to weight. Um, so they have that kind of like perception already. And that's obviously reinforced by this societal narrative as well, that everyone's kind of got used to around it being individual responsibility. And so it's something we've really been trying to change. Um, 
and make sure that everyone's aware of the complex causes, but also health inequalities and how that is impacted really. Um, we know that, for example, obesity in children is two to, two to three times higher in lower income areas compared to the wealthiest areas in the country. So clearly, clearly um, inequalities plays a huge role, um, but none of that is really captured in the headlines or in the messages that you put out. So we've been trying to do a lot of work to raise awareness um, about that. So publicly, but also a lot of the conversations behind the scenes as well. Um, but in answer to the other part of your question, I do sometimes wonder in some in some arenas now if it's become too one-sided the other way. So a lot of the reaction as well to the government's obesity strategy was, you know, there's no point in telling anyone to do anything because it's an issue of inequalities. And, and that's not strictly true. We know that levels are higher in lower income groups, but it isn't just a problem in lower income groups. Um, so for adults, for example, obesity rates are it's about two thirds of, of adults have overweight or obesity. So it's the majority of the population, which is a really good indication that it's not a somewhat, you know, one person's fault. It shows that it's much more complex than that, but it's not just an issue of poverty. Um, and so, it, yeah, to answer your question, I, I do think there is also this place for us to make changes at an individual level. Um, but how we communicate that is absolutely key. Note, knowing where everyone's starting point is is also really key. Um, and just, yeah, the understanding that, that it does, it, you know, we eat at an individual level, but what are all those things that are contributing to what we end up eating, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does, absolutely. And it's, it's brought up a lot of questions that I have that I know we're going to cover. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask was, do you think that um, focusing on the individual to some extent is... Not fruitless but like is never going to solve the wider issue and um, like like i guess we see money sometimes I, I know in ireland being poured into resources for for example weight management for people who are already struggling um do you think that's a fruitless exercise or sh should the money be spent somewhere else like where mm. where should the funding go where should the focus be is it on preventative should we you know continue to push more dietitians more health psychologists that yeah. kind of where does the introvert, or I guess, where does the, um, where's the source? Because for years, public health interventions have been, you know, let's tell the public what to eat and they should change themselves. Yeah. Whereas now we're seeing a different narrative. Um, do you think it should, the majority of the focus should be on the kind of source stuff and the environment? And like you said, the kind of childhood growing up stuff? I think we need both. And I think because we can we can encourage people to go along to weight management services and there are some really good ones out there that, ha that have been created by multidisciplinary team of nutritionists dietitians exercise specialists um clinical and health psychologists researchers like you know they have all, all like really good people involved in that and they're really sound um and evidence-based programs and i think that that is there's definitely a space for that with, with the statistics of where we are with overweight and obesity. I don't think that we could just make it about prevention. We need um, that treatment kind of element as well. Um, but I would argue that the policy stuff, the wider policy stuff is really important because it, we still need people to be in an environment, in a wider environment where they can make changes. So lots of people that can manage their micro environments or their home environment and, and do things that work for them there. But we're essentially, you know, you go out and you're surrounded by food that is of processed high in fat salt and sugar um, and that's more widely available more accessible and cheaper than healthier food so that that is the crux of the issue so so we need a mixture i think 
And we're, we're another thing that, that I want to speak about and that we're also surrounded by is, is advertisements. And I know you have uh, mm. done a lot of work in, in this kind of area. Um, and that's one of the big factors that we don't really consider when we think of, of public health is that the impact yeah. of, of food advertisements. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the role that advertising has to pay, play in people's food choices? Yeah, so this has been a big campaign over the last few years. Um, for a long time across public health, you think back to kind of the, the, the same kind of process happened back to, to banning ads of tobacco. But uh, we've been campaigning a lot to reduce um, the advertising of foods and drinks, high fat, salt and sugar, mainly um, before 9pm. And so we know that there's lots of evidence now, there's good evidence to show that advertising impacts how much, what children eat, it influences pester powers, putting that pressure on the parents, um, it normalises certain way of eating and certain foods. So it definitely, definitely has a role um, and we have the evidence to show that. But where it was always argued that there were um, restrictions in place for advertising to children, they never really went far enough. So there were restrictions if an audience made up, well, 25% of the audience or more were children. Now, you could have the, those really, really popular, highest viewing programmes, which are um, family-based. So the X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, classic ones, um, that 25% um, of the audience might have been, or less than 25% of the audience might have been children, but that's still hundreds or thousands of children. So they were still exposed. So then you would see that 6 to 9pm really saturated with these types of adverts because it was a bit of a loophole and um, same with online so uh, in 2016 they ended up extending some of these similar tv restrictions to online and um, knowing that uh, that a lot of children were watching seeing adverts online instead now um, but it never really went far enough so the campaign has continued and actually as part of the government's obesity strategy so the stuff that the headlines didn't pick up on which was really frustrating because um, it's all a negative individual responsibility message but what the government did commit to was restrictions um 9 p.m watershed and then something similar online we don't know quite what that's going to look like yet but still to capture and um, so that that has been a massive win i think one that um you know we, we never knew that we'd get right at this moment anyway particularly in a pandemic and everything else that's going on so that's really positive but the main thing with the policies is how they're implemented and the well it, this is going to be fully implemented at the end of 2022 but it seems like a long time but actually what it does is um give companies a chance to reformulate improve the nutrient profile of their products so essentially this is one of the main um the main positive impacts of advertising restrictions actually is that although there's some foods we don't really want to be bombarded with any of it you have to think logically and pragmatically about a stepping stone and where we are and if it just means that to start with we can get companies to reformulate create a healthier version of their product it just the driving force for them is that they can still then advertise then that reformulation aspect um, overall has a huge um, benefit on public health because essentially people are still eating similar foods they were before, but they might contain less sugar or less salt or less saturated fat, fat or calories. Um, so yeah, so it, it's positive. The, the more recent announcement has been really positive, but um, there's a couple of years now. So it'll be interesting to see how the food industry changed their products to, to adapt to that policy. And, and is the main driver for food companies and, and the food industry um, in terms of that regard, is the main driver for them that it's, it's just simply more profitable? Yeah, yeah. The profit margin on foods that contain fat, salt, sugar is much higher than food that contains fibre, vitamin and minerals because it's higher in fruits and veg, for example. It, ju it just costs more to put fruit and veg in food than some of the other ingredients. Um, and that then makes it really difficult because you have some companies who want to do the right thing 
and they're commercially at a disadvantage for doing so. So a lot of the good companies actually will be asking for legislation. They've been asking for, for mandatory kind of reformulation programs the whole time because they want to know that if they're taking a risk of reducing salt um, or whatever nutrient it is, that, that others are doing it as well. And that's also really important because with salt in particular, we have the evidence for this. Sure, it's similar for sugar, but it's earlier days. We know that taste um, preferences change as well. So we kind of adapt. So if all the foods across across the um, all industries reduce their salt at, at the same time and gradually do it, then you don't really get much of a public backlash either because people tend not to notice. That's what we, we saw in the UK anyway over the years. So legislation where everyone does it together is, is really um, the most powerful approach. Okay, that's really interesting. So just um, with that then, do you think that's maybe an explanation? And I know lots of people will wonder why the healthy foods are, are so expensive. Do you think that's part of it is that they can just be undercut so easily by people who, who are, I guess, low nutrient density foods um, that are just pushed out there for profit? Is that one of the main reasons yeah. why like good food is are essentially like, you know, a lot of nutritious food is, is, is pretty difficult to, to come across in terms of price wise. hundred percent. It just, it, it just costs more. You don't have the profit margin isn't as big. It costs more to produce. So what we need, because all the time, healthier, more nutritious food is more expensive. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to see a shift, a good enough shift. And we, we basically need to make the healthier food more affordable. And we also need to get people to want to eat it because there can be certain perceptions around those foods as well. So what's happened is, we generally like the foods that we're familiar with um, and this is basically the foods on the shelves the foods that we, we're exposed to all the time and we're always much more exposed to the ultra processed high fat sugar salt foods and so industry will say well we're not going to create that healthier version because we know no one will buy it they don't want it they want the foods that we're already making but the reason they want the foods they're already making is because that's what we're used to so then it becomes a vicious circle we have to somehow intercept that that's a whole cultural shift and the government can help by um, tax relief, so things like that, all the, the fun chat, um, <laughs> and by, to help make the healthier food um, more affordable. So they could give benefits to companies producing healthier foods, lower the tax on them. And that's what we're really trying to change the conversation to at, um, at the moment, because even in um, recently, so in England, we've had this Eat Out um, campaign which the, where the government have been subsidising restaurants to get the public to eat out. And it's to get businesses back up and running when the restaurants have been shut for all these months. And you think, well, there's that model there and they've got the cash and they're using the cash to do that. But that's basically what we've been asking them to do the whole time, but just on healthier foods. Um, so, so we do need some kind of model like that. And then trying to get people to eat those healthier foods when they're used to, you know, the salty, sugary, really tasty stuff that we know that people like. Um, that, that's another part of the equation then, because essentially we have to expose people to certain foods. We have to encourage them, incentivize people to eat those so they realize they like them. Or if they eat them enough times, then you start developing a taste preference and, and start liking them after we're a bit more familiar. So yeah, there's lots of, of work to be done, but it is a bit of a, a whole cultural shift. And, and with regards to those food choices, do you think people actually have autonomy? I, I know people believe they have mm. autonomy believe that they have um this kind of control over you know like like you mm. said earlier the choice that they're just able to choose what they do and don't like i guess as a psychologist i'm quite interested in the yeah. implicit biases and the way i guess that people can be manipulated um but i wonder are those implicit biases reflected in people's food choices like do we have evidence that 
um, the advertising can kind of manipulate those food choices or even just the way you know supermarkets are structured and things like that yeah so it, yeah that, that, so there is um definitely that evidence around advertising impacting um i hate the word choice like so deliberately so when i use the word choice now in relation to food i'll always do it in like inverted commas because that it, it does give this kind of perception again that there's a le level playing field and we just get to simply like um you know choose healthy food or not healthy food and then it's our fault whereas there's loads of different factors that influence what what we choose um to eat and um, so I, I usually talk about food options more than food choice um, and we know that yeah the supermarkets are laid out so we buy those high profit foods um it's more expensive for them to put fruit and vegetables for example in a meal deal than it is to put a packet of crisps like so um supermarkets the product placement is really interesting so it's not just the marketing and advertising it's the product placement so that's been captured in the new obesity strategy as well restrictions on um end of aisle and checkout foods so there's enough evidence to show that that impacts um, and also um price promotion so lots of the unhealthy foods more of the unhealthy foods are discounted than the healthier foods so we need to shift that balance as well um, so we know that all these different kind of nudge behaviors do play do play a role there's been some interesting research i think it was by the royal society of public health um, and they set up like a bit of a tester it was called health on the shelf something like that if you if anyone wants to look it up but um yeah where they kind of changed the layout and, and changed the prompts and changed the nudges in store and the reason why that's important is because it disrupts your normal behavior so what i think we don't really realize is that there's a number and it's something like it's over 200 anyway just over 200 we make food related about 200 food related decisions a day we don't realize we're doing that because they're not necessarily conscious um, but that's why we eat out of habit and we're creature, creatures of habit so you'd have to change around the whole supermarket to kind of disrupt your way of thinking to start then choosing other foods and, and making that change so, and and manufacturers industry retailers they know this that's why the high profit food is at the end of the aisle in you know the right eye level in the shelf or cheaper so there's all these incentives all the time and essentially there's all this blame around obesity which is really old-fashioned actually we really need to move away from that when what what we're being asked to do is walk around and resist biology and resist human nature because we're designed to want to eat to survive um so yeah so, so this is like what the, a lot of the policies that that we campaign for and are now in a lot of the obesity strategies are trying to change. I think that's a lot of what I actually see in clinic is people coming in and saying, you know, why can't I choose the, why can't I choose the healthy option? You know, mm. Why can't I choose? Why, why do I always want X, Y, and Z? And it's always the kind of, like you said, high fat, high sugar. And, and it does like, they, 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 yeah, exactly. And, and it's partly it's about helping them understand that, you know, these, this is kind of human biology. You are kind of, essentially for, for supermarkets and things like a little guinea pig that follows the structure of the of the supermarket yeah. and does what everyone yeah. else does and it's not necessarily your fault you don't have that autonomy mm. that maybe maybe you believe but like you mentioned they are kind of changing things and there is legislation mm. coming in in the UK not coming in Ireland unfortunately not um, yet <laughs> not yet um what are some of the pros and cons of, of, of those changes that they've made? Are there still bits to be made up? Were you happy with the announcements? Um, what kind of changes were the good ones and the, the less positive ones? So the announcements of, of the policies versus there's a gap between the announcements and then the implementation. <laughs> so as an example, we had in 2016, one of the first child obesity strategies in the UK was announced cross government strategy, which is really positive. It means it's had buy-in from all departments, which is really rare. 
Um, but there was a lot of backlash about that because it just didn't contain enough. Over the years, every couple of years, we seem to get a bit more and it gets built on, which is good. Um, but the first one contained the soft drinks industry levy. So that was a, a sugar tax on drinks, soft drinks, and also a sugar reduction reformulation program. And that was in foods. So the, the, the sugar tax on drinks, a lot of people always assume that it's like just making the more sugary drinks more expensive for the consumer. And then you get that nudge because there is that change in price point to, to have the lower sugar version. That's how it's worked in other countries. There is evidence to show that that works. However, in the UK, it was much more of a driver to reformulate. So it was about sugar reduction. So it was actually a tax or a levy on the manufacturers. And um, so if a drink contained more than 5% sugar, then the manufacturer would have to pay a fee. Um, now, what a couple did, a couple of the main brands did, was not change their sugar, but pass that cost on to consumers, which isn't ideal, but as long as they put it all on the, the um, more sugary drink, then that can help nudge behavior. What the better company did was just reduce the sugar in their drinks. So we saw sugar go down in drinks by 29% between 2015 and 2018. Um, and sales of these drinks didn't choose, which is, um, didn't change, sorry, which is not necessarily what we might think we want to hear, but from a public health policy, if you can prove that it's not gonna lose an industry money, then that can be a positive thing. But sugar reduction really went down. Um, in the so, so that's been really successful in the drinks in the um, reformulation program so the sugar reduction program that was in the nine food categories that contribute the most sugar to children and that wasn't mandatory it was voluntary so there was kind of a stick but it, no one was getting a fine companies weren't getting a fine if they didn't make the change and within the same time frame we saw sugar reduced by 2.9 percent so it's 29% when we saw that mandatory legislation in the drinks and 2.9% when we saw it in food. Um, that's obviously a huge difference. So 10, 10 times um, increase when there's legislation versus not. It's probably fair to caveat that it's easier to reduce the sugar in drinks than it is in food um, because the sugar doesn't contribute to the weight of the product and therefore you don't have to replace it with something. You have to replace the sugar in food with something. So it's trickier, but it is possible. But because they don't have that legislation, there's not as much of an incentive. So the problem with some of the policies so far is that they've been voluntary and we've had years worth of voluntary policies. They don't work. We know that the whole time. So that's a frustration. So the sugar tax on the drinks, big success, frustration with the voluntary um, food sugar reduction. Then after that, we had in 2018, another obesity strategy announced, chapter two it was called. Um, and that was just a lot of consultations, which again is frustrating because you're, you think, you know, you've got all the evidence for this. Um, you just need to implement something and nothing was, but what it did mean is that everyone had a chance to contribute, say evidence, say whether the food industry, public health. Um, and then once they made a decision off the back of those, I guess you could argue that the policy is more robust because it's already had, the government has already taken in all the counter arguments. So that can help. And then the more recent one, like I mentioned, has announced marketing advertising restrictions, price promotion um, restrictions on unhealthy foods uh, and product placement. Calorie, menu, um, calorie labelling on menus, um, a change, a consultation to how we label on our front or packs in, in, in retail. Plenty, um, if you know any of the research on, on this stuff, but um, I've spoken to lots of people about the kind of calorie notification. Notify mm -hmm. um, has that had a big, has that had a big impact in terms of when that was introduced? Did that have a big impact on, on people's behaviour? So the calorie labelling on menus? Yeah. Yeah. And even on foods, even on foods themselves. 
Yeah, so interestingly, so on foods with the traffic light system, generally what you see is it can be really helpful to people, but it can be something that increases the health inequality gap because it means that people who um, are engaged in health, like cost isn't so much of an issue, have more time maybe, they will go and they might look at all the traffic lights and, and make a choice based on that and the, and the nutrition. Um, other families are picking up what they can afford, what they know the family will eat, um, and aren't as educated in it, then they won't be making the changes. So it can increase in, um, health inequalities in that sense. But the reason why these policies are so important is because they encourage reformulation. So if it was mandatory, which it's not, the front of packed traffic lights isn't mandatory, and um, which we've been asking for, everyone has to do it. Then all of a sudden, if it was like red for everything, then that would incentivize a manufacturer to reformulate, reduce a bit of salt to make it amber. And, and that's where you see the biggest progress. It might only be small changes, but when it's across the board, it has a huge impact. Um, so that's the benefit of a lot of these. So, you know, some people do want to know the, nu the nutrition, some people, and, and that's great. And if they can take that on board and that's helpful for them, then that's obviously a really good thing. Um, other people might not, but it still might impact them through the reformulation aspect. And what's the incentive for the government not to make these things mandatory? Well, you don't want to lose industry money. Well, before, yeah, basically, because before um, it was all tied to the EU and importations and exports, so um, it, it was difficult to have um, color coded labeling, say, on products that might come off from Italy that would be red for everything or red in salt. And so it was a bit of an EU thing. And the reason why it's back on the agenda now to talk about front of pack labeling is. Um, Brexit was actually an opportunity. You can't have a policy chat without Brexit coming into it, even with food. <laughs> it seems. But um, yeah, Brexit was, is an opportunity for us to relook at how we do things because we're not necessarily going to be tied into an EU way. Um, so, yeah, so that's one of the main barriers, and and that's why the time is now. I think. Okay, so outside of outside of those things, then what? I guess just to make sure we don't miss anything. What responsibilities do? the government still have in terms of making these changes? Is it changing those kind of voluntary legislations into um, implemented, implemented ones? Um, you know, where, where are the steps still to be taken? You mentioned um, inequality as a huge one. Is yeah. that one of the cruxes of the, of the problem? Definitely. And there was a lot of backlash again, like with the recent announcement of the obesity strategy that I noticed just generally um, about it not tackling inequalities and inequalities being the main contributing factor of obesity, which is correct. But I wouldn't expect to see an obesity strategy announced and a whole systemic change, which tackling inequalities would be to be under that title, under that umbrella. I just wouldn't expect to see it. So I felt like I understand everyone's frustrations. Inequalities is a huge issue in this country and it shouldn't be. And other parts of my work touch upon food insecurity and it's shocking, really shocking how much food insecurity we have in one of the wealthiest countries. Um, but I wouldn't expect it to be specifically under the obesity um, strategy as like a, an action as such. But, I, but we also know that in order to reduce obesity levels is something that needs to be dealt with across government but like I said it's a systemic change so yeah that is definitely an area that needs to be focused on and um what, what you tend to see is children can be they can have overweight or obesity but also be malnourished um, at the same time because a lot of the foods then that are affordable are the inaccessible again are the really energy dense but nutrient poor foods so children might be getting lots of calories but not necessarily the nutrients that they need um so yeah Sorry, that's some of the, the work that Marcus Rashford has been doing and uh, has been publicly speaking out about. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So that's what we know in relation to all school food um, 
basically having there was a campaign and bite back and and jamie um oliver were involved um well jamie's obviously done that kind of campaigning for years with when it comes to school food um but more recently bite back 2030 so they're a newer organization who are um that have a youth board who are trying to change the food environment to make it a, a, a fairer system and it's about all children having a right to health basically um and marcus rashford brilliant did brilliant work at getting all of that across the line because the campaign was around when um everyone was homeschooling during the pandemic and lockdown the the children that were usually getting the school meal allowance so they were relying on school lunches for, for, for healthy food um, or any food um, we're not getting that access anymore so how do you make sure that they're still getting those and so very quickly the government put into place a system a voucher system or a system where they were getting home deliveries or whatever it was so the conversation progressed then to okay well what about holiday hunger that's been on the agenda for ages and sometimes it's been a bit of a, mind, um, a financial money thing or it's been a logistic thing and all of a sudden we're like hang on you, you could get that system up and running really really quickly in lockdown so what about in school holidays and these kids are still going hungry and that's what that campaign was about it was painful because the first part was getting them to agree to easter holidays so the government would provide those meals still or vouchers during the easter holidays then there was another campaign during for the, like the May half term, then another one for the summer holidays. And every time there was like a that government would say no, and then they'd do a U-turn. So you need to keep that pressure on. So I think Marcus Rashford, he's actually just set up a bit of a coalition as well to keep that conversation going, which is brilliant. Well, it's good. Um, and, and obviously the, the food environment is huge, not, not just when, when children are growing up, but across the lifespan. Um, <laughs> For for people who don't know about what the food environment actually means, um, what what is the food environment for people, and and why does that make things so difficult? Such a good question because yeah, we talk about it just like everyone knows. But for me, I'm talking about all those things. So, um, your food environment could be in your home, or it could be in the wider environment. So, for children, uh, young people, and there's a lot more kind of lived experience research being carried out lately to see um, to hear from people what they find difficult, and for them, it could be talking about okay what 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 are they what is happening between that journey from home to school or from school to to home like what are they passing what's in their environment that might trigger a certain way of eating and usually it was the high level of fast food places meal deals targeting of children advertising um to get children when they're coming out of school to buy certain foods it would also be that children would hang out in the chicken shops or the fast food place or whatever it was because that was a place they could hang out with their friends it had internet all of these things that would kind of draw them in as well and um, so the environment is those things kind of outside of us that would cause us to eat in a certain way or behave in a certain way so that i particularly consider it in terms of the marketing the advertising the price promotions the product placement um the abundance of less healthy food establishments versus healthier ones um it could also be the physical environment and that could be related to physical activity and how active you could be as well um so yeah i don't think it's limited but when i look at it they're the areas that i'm mainly focusing on so all the all the different things that contribute to what foods you're you're choosing and that kind of thing yeah those prompts and nudges what do you say to people um or what would you say to people who kind of deny that these issues exist and, and that think that obesity is a choice and that you know i've seen arguments as narrow-minded as yeah well a banana is cheaper than you know a big mac yeah you know what do you say to those people who um i guess deny that that some of these things are an issue and, and put it down on the individual 
Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that, that I, I think we have, I, I, it never fails to amaze me actually, some, you know, to just, just how stuck we are in this idea of kind of individual responsibility and people must just be lazy. I say that in inverted commas as well, because I hate that so much. Um, but I think it's really just, you have to just point to the evidence and the evidence is about teaching people about all the contributing factors, whether it's like you mentioned, the biology or psychology or, or all the factors. And I always put it back to as well. So it's not just one person making a bad choice. It is the majority of adults in the UK have overweight or obesity. That's not a failing of the majority of adults. That's a failing of the food system, the food environment. Um, so yeah, if I, I could see how people could think that you know one or two people are just like making a bad choice even though that is not um fair or reflective but i think if you bring it back to the statistics and just what's going on and how and how much things have changed as well um over the years i think it can be a, a message that hits home a bit more yeah because it, it is one of the major changes that has happened over the past well i guess since the issue of overweight and obesity has has become such an issue um yeah. the, the one thing that is consistent across that is the change in things like the food environment and yeah. and things like that so if you look at, at the correlations between those two it's quite evident that that is a significant yeah. contributor um but i guess that brings it back to that kind of blaming culture where the individual is like stigmatized and feels blame and at fault yeah. for for, for example, struggling with, with something like this. Yeah. Um, there are loads of conversations around weight stigma online, um, but yeah. it very much still exists, even from people who work in the field of, of yeah. health, um, which is which is sad to see. Um, yeah. Could you quickly give an indicator as to why weight stigma is so problematic, I guess, because we uh, like I see the conversations online, but um, mm. it doesn't still quite get across to people um, what weight stigma can do and what blaming the individual can actually do. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's just something that is absolutely embedded in society. It's just been a narrative and that has been reinforced, whether it's by, again by the food industry and would always say, well, we just provide choice. And it's up to people to make choice. But it's like, yeah, but your, your less healthy choices, you know, thrown in my face 10 times more than, than your healthier choice or it's much more expensive or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a huge issue and um, i think it is just that we need to create a whole narrative change around it. it you're right that there's lots of evidence to show that it exists amongst healthcare professionals as well it's a bias that we you know people learn people learn that um in terms of like stigmatizing um and certain biases learn that through kind of generations and other people in society as well so we definitely need to change the narrative and one thing kind of going back to your previous question that we, we um I've been working with is a framework that has been um, developed in terms of changing the narratives that intercept it, using metaphors to change the way people think. Otherwise, you go along this automatic pattern of thinking and, and perceptions, biases, they don't ever get changed. So kind of interrupting that with some metaphors. So talking all the time about kind of um, how the food system is flooded with unhealthy foods or the spotlight is on the less healthy foods or just using metaphors like that to really just try and get the message across so people are learning lots more about the food environment and what is happening there um, versus the conversation being steered towards the individual i think that we what's really difficult is that we have um, a huge way to go in changing the media and the headlines that they use because i think that is a massive part of the issue um, and, so, and some journalists are engaged with this and some aren't because they know what people will read um, so i think that that is an area that would really really help Absolutely, and some of those some of those headlines are actually like sickening to read when you read about 
some people's perceptions of, of weight and, and things like that. It's quite sad. Um, and the pictures as well. That's a problem because it would always be, you know, a person, someone with obesity eating a burger. And again, that over massively oversimplifies that, that, that that's why people have overweight or obesity because they just sit there on the sofa and they eat burgers. So um, that was trying to promote, like there's a World Obesity Forum, Federation Forum, God, I should know that, um, have um, a whole image bank as well, which we try and encourage journalists and media to use as much as possible, um, which are much better images too. Yeah, even those, and again, that would build, uh, like I mentioned earlier, those implicit biases, even that that is the problem. And consistently mm. seeing that all the time is going to develop those biases that you said can are learned essentially and are learned through environment and people around yeah. us and through generations. Mm. Um, I guess I, I know we're kind of short on time and I want to wrap this up soon. But um, just to just to wrap up on, on that note, one of the arguments um, I hear a lot and that we've already spoken about is that the individual holds the responsibility um yeah but they obviously have a level of responsibility or there are things that they can do on an individual level um yeah. and i guess some types of conversations that we've spoken about can leave people feeling like oh i'm the victim of environment or i'm the victim yeah. of legislation and maybe feel helpless after hearing how many other things are at play yeah. for maybe their difficulties so just to finish up i guess on an individual level um where would somebody even start if they are struggling with things like overweight or obesity or having kind of health issues related to that, what kind of advice would you give to someone um, that's, I guess, not to, yeah. not to feel hopeless about all the things that are going on? Do you know what? It's a really, I'm so glad you asked it because it's such an important and missing part of the conversation because I'm really aware that uh, where we've had to rebalance the conversation because it's all been on the individual that now there's, there's, yeah there's potential for people just to feel totally disempowered and it's not that it's about empowering people through creating a, a healthier environment and it gives people the best opportunity um so as much as kind of it's really important obviously that we reduce weight stigma and everyone takes responsibility for what they contribute in that area um, it's also important to challenge some of the narratives that people that go around all the time that that managing weight is impossible, that weight regain is always inevitable um, and, and, and that weight you know, isn't a factor and people shouldn't care about it. I think that it's really important that we have open and evidence-based conversations because there are lots of people that do um, their own weight management or go to weight management services and find them really beneficial even if they do regain some of that weight, usually the overall trajectory of growth means that they wouldn't have regained necessarily more than where they, um, than, you know, what they would have had they have not had any intervention at all. Um, if you think about kind of the starting point there. Um, so I think it is really important to empower people and there is going to be more money um, pumped into services in, in the UK. That was part of the obesity strategy that just ended up getting missing. Well, in the headlines that's what landed as the individual responsibility part that, that people didn't love um but essentially what that is is there's going to be more weight weight management services so speaking to um your doctor and then getting a referral is um could be a really good way but we know that the government needs to do a much better job of putting much better programs and systems in place that that have been developed by the right people the right professionals that have that really strong um behavior change element to it um, that have a screening program in place as well, because for some people it's not going to be um, as appropriate as for other people. And sometimes we, which is, you know, challenging 
um, with public health versus individual level um, approaches. For public health, it needs to be what's going to impact the majority of the population because you cannot physically reach every individual. Um, but these types of programmes, um, they, need, they need to suit the individual. We need to have screening in place to make sure that they are achieving that. Um, and for a duty of care as well. So I would say there is lots of support that people can get. Um, to take the pressure of themselves by being aware of all the different factors in the environment that do contribute to making it trickier, not just environment, but genetics and all the other factors as well. Um, but knowing that, the, that there is support if they want it and when they're ready as well. Yeah, I think you're right there. And, and like you mentioned earlier, there are um, services out there that have MDTs like psychologists mm -hmm. as well as nutritionists, yeah. etc. that will, uh, I guess, cater for the individual and give them, I guess, the best chance of changing, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Jenny, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to talk to you. Um, I really, really appreciate your time. I know you're incredibly busy, but I'm, that was really insightful for me anyway. And I hope everyone else got the same from it. So I really appreciate your time and thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. No problem at all.